Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, February the 15th, 2012. And uh, today is also episode 840 of the Survival Podcast. And we have one of our all-time favorite guests back for his seventh appearance on TSP. That's Stephen Harris. And uh, today, Stephen is going to talk to us about a great deal of things. Everything in the alternative energy world, what works, what doesn't, uh, how you can use it for yourself, how it can be used on a large scale. And I say everything, but the reality is this interview went so long that it's about 50% of what's out there. There's a whole a slew of other technologies that we'll have him back for his eighth appearance on uh, to discuss as well. Before I bring Stephen on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal, the folks I call the original survival podcast sponsor. And the reason they're the original one is they're the first one. Vic Rontalo over there was the first guy that came to me and said, Hey, Jack, I want to sponsor the show as a full-time sponsor. I don't want to just give away some gear or some stuff like that. I want to give you some money. I want you to put a banner up there. I want your endorsement. And uh, I, I, that's when I put together the program uh, that required approval by my moderators to even let a sponsor on the show. And uh, Vic was, of course, approved because they do a great job. And then he stepped up even further and gave away their discount membership. Uh, for, uh, for It usually sells for $29 back then, now sells for $49. It's a lifetime membership, gives you discounts on everything they sell. And uh, gave that away free to the MSB. And he continues to do that to this day, and they just renewed. And they're going into their fourth year as a sponsor of the show. That's unheard of in podcasting. They have a sponsor for four consecutive years. Most of our sponsors have been here for at least three, though. That says something about you guys and the quality of the sponsors we have as well. But check out Safe Castle. They're at prepared.pro, prepared.pro, not com, P-R-O, prepared.pro. And uh, you'll find that they have just about everything you could think of for your prepping needs. And if you get on over to their sister site, you can link to from there. You'll also find they build some of the best hardened shelters in the world. Check them out today. Next up today, backyard food production. If you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, get on over to BackyardFoodProduction.com. And Marjorie, that lives down south of Austin there on her homestead, lives a very, very self-sufficient life living off of the land, so to speak. We'll show you how to do it. And she'll show you how to do it from anything from a small farm to a suburban backyard. Check them out today. Again, the DVD is called Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm. And they're at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I uh, put out a really interesting little piece of audio by Judge Napolitano uh, on, on uh, Facebook today. I'm probably going to include that little audio on Friday. Many people believe it's what got him fired from Fox News. If so, I say more power to the judge, and uh, maybe I'll get a hold of his old publicist. I think I still have him in my uh, phone book. Maybe I could uh, give the judge some advice on where to go from here and let him take his show online. Love to see that. Love to hear what you think about Judge Napolitano coming back in kind of the Glenn Beck format. Or who knows? Maybe, may, you know, Jack Spirico could only do so much to help somebody like Napolitano. Maybe there's already something going on there. That would be my guess. And that's maybe that's why he felt like he could speak freely. Who knows? Anyway, uh, do connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. We have conversations like that and more. Uh, next up, I want to hear today in the comments section, any of you that went to Starbucks, what happened? 
If you went there and you spent your $2 bill, did people understand you? Did they thank you? Did they tell you, go away? Did they look at you with a dumb look? I've heard a bunch of different things like that. I'd love to hear kind of your after-action report from Starbucks uh, $2 for Second Amendment Appreciation Day. Just let me know in the show notes in the comments section. Uh, next up, remember, uh, you can help support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get discounts to a whole bunch of vendors, and i got a new one coming for you. You ever hear of Paladin Press? I'm in negotiations with them right now. It looks like I'm going to be able to bring them in this week. And they will be providing a discount off of all Paladin Press products. You name it, we got it uh, at Paladin Press. And it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15%, so a substantial discount. Uh, and that will let you buy DVDs, books, and videos, and things like that on just about anything you would want to know more about, from the tactical to the practical, from homesteading to uh, E&E, Escape and Evasion. Paladin Press has it all. Uh, they are really an awesome, awesome company with an awesome selection of titles. And uh, I try to build up the value in the MSB. This is just another way. Remember, if you're military, law enforcement, active duty, or prior service, get in touch with me before you join. Just simply send me an email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put something like military discount or service discount in the subject line so it comes to my attention quickly. Tell me the details of who, where you were and what you did or where you are and what you're doing. And remember, Peace Corps qualifies for that as well. With that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I'd like to again welcome back to the show for, again, his seventh appearance, Stephen Harris. Uh, Stephen is an awesome guy. He worked at Chrysler for over 10 years on their hydrogen fuel projects. Uh, he's an author of several books. He has a great company with a tremendous amount of uh, uh, books and resources and materials to learn more about alternative energy. Uh, from biogas to solar and wind and more, if you want to know about it, Stephen is the answer, man, and that's what he's here to talk to us about today. Hey, Stephen, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. Jack, I'm thrilled to be back, and I am going to dish the secrets. I'm going to spill the beans on everything that works and everything that doesn't work. We're going to cover all the subjects. Very, very cool. So um, this is your fifth appearance, man. You've, you've been back, I said, more than anybody else. Sixth appearance, number six. Oh, you're all right, six. That's in your notes, man. <laughs> I guess you're noting your fifth appearance was your last one. So Yeah, my fifth appearance uh, was my last one, and we're going to talk about that and answer some questions. But, yeah, this is show number six. Very, very cool. So um, do you uh, do you have some some stuff from the last uh, show that maybe you wanted to chat about or, you know, got maybe left unsaid? Um, God, it just it's that the last show, and uh, you can get the last show at Jack's website or he's got a whole page for me and it's also at solar1234.com I got all my shows listed in the details uh, the last show was on solar heat and I went over solar heat and how good solar heat was solar heat is real solar energy it works just fabulous you can get your, your return on investment on solar heat in days weeks or months uh, we didn't get a, we covered the, the subject so well we didn't really get many questions on on the subject but it's it's the first thing that I have here in my notes to talk about and um, basically solar heat you you can go back and listen to the last show I'll, sure. I'll keep this short just go back and listen to the last show I talk about how you can make a solar heater put it in your window blow hot air in, into your house. Um, you heat with uh, hot air and you store hot you store heat and water is, is the general rules of thumb. 
Uh, you can do it. You can get started with free glass, a two by four, an old door, some black paint, uh, some muffin fans for the use for computers. And you can slope the thing down from your window, put it in like an air conditioner, sunshine hits it, blows free heat in. Works great in all different climates in the United States, except for Alaska. You have a little difficulty there being dark 24 hours a day for part of the time. But what I'm going to do is I had a special for just Jack's TSP people uh, last last uh, month, and it was a sellout. Everyone just loved it. I didn't expect the number of sales that I got. And uh, it's uh, for Sunshine the Dollars. That's my famous book that tells you how to get free glass for doing solar heating, tells you how to make uh, solar ovens, two of them, in there, one is a great big one I made from an old freezer. I show you the baked bread and baked cake I make in it. The other one is the complete handbook of solar air heating systems. This is the one that tells you how to professionally install solar heating into your house. I mean, as if you were um, a commercial builder, how to do it at that level and to do it to code and to do it perfectly so it'll last as long as the house. And the other one is movable insulation, which tells you how to. Uh, put up and take down insulation, basically let the sunshine in during the daytime through the window and then put insulation up on the window at night to keep your heat in. Uh, the trio of the books is awesome. It's uh, only $49 for all three books. That's a savings of $25. And for all of you membership support brigade people, if you're not a member of the MSB, join the MSB because your uh, discount your 15% discount applies to the $49 price so you can get it even cheaper. So That's awesome, man. I, I love that you do that when you run a special. You still, I mean, I'm sure there'll be maybe some things you might do where you can't do it because it's like a, like your stoves and stuff are really hard to discount. Yeah. But the fact you do it when you can, man, we appreciate that. So thanks a lot for that. And folks, again, you can get it solar1234.com and I will absolutely make sure that's in the show notes as well. Good. So uh, that kind of covers solar heat. I mean, just go back and listen. Show number five, it's the best thing you can do. Now, there's one thing we've never covered in all of our shows, except for that fact that I don't like it. That you hate it, and that's photovoltaics. Yeah. We, we've really not ever talked about it, but we're going to talk about it today. Yeah, we are. Uh, solar PV, I call it the worst thing that ever happened to solar energy, because I work with large-scale solar energy, and that would be like... You know, I'm all in favor and done research work and development work on big dishes, you know, 30 foot dishes that you point at the sun and they make 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And at 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, you can take garbage and turn it into carbon and run steam through it. And you can make hydrogen and carbon monoxide. Then you run that through a generator and that spins a, a, a turbine and that spins a generator which is made of copper, and that makes real three-phase high-voltage AC. I mean, that's real solar power, and that's what the future of solar power is going to be, and that's how mass-manufactured solar power is, as opposed to these flat panels that everyone think is nirvana because they're flat, they're sexy-looking. You put them out there, and they produce electricity, but they produce DC electricity, and we all run on AC electricity. And in order to convert AC to DC, what do you need? You need more electronics, which is more expenditure. You also need batteries to store it in, which is, again, more expenditure right there. And you can really never get your money 
out of solar photovoltaics because the crystalline solar panels are grown with electricity. They do the vapor deposition of silicon, meaning they heat it up under very high pure heat, turn it into a gas, and then deposit it to make the pure silicone, which is then doped and um, made into the solar photovoltaic panels that you put out into the sunshine. So it takes a great deal, a huge amount of electricity to make these solar cells. And basically what you're doing is you're making these solar cells in Japan with nuclear electricity, and then you're moving them over to the United States, putting them into the sunshine and getting your electricity out. So <clears throat> they're not a uh, successful large-scale form of electricity. In fact, they're the most expensive form of electricity you're going to get because it's like taking 20 years of your electricity bills and just spending all the money all at once. Well, and I, I kind of want to like explain some other things around that. Like, okay, if we go to a state with the highest possible insurance rates because of socialist stupidity like California, mm-hmm. and then we get the best possible deal we can on the solar panel, maybe we can shorten that payback time in money by something. Right. But the way I prefer to look at it is that we're supposedly doing this for energy, right? Right. Uh, for the for, for for creating energy. Now, my view is if I took that same solar panel and used one 250 watt solar panel, high efficiency panel, and said I'm going to only use energy that comes from this panel and store it in battery banks until I have enough energy to build one more panel, that's going to take me about 30 years, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's the payback period I'm really interested in. Not just money, but how much energy would it produce to make the energy that goes in? Exactly. True. And that doesn't even take into account that your battery's not going to last 30 years. Your battery's going to last <laughs> 10 years. So you're replacing the battery. <clears throat> so let, let me put this straightforward to you, okay? Solar photovoltaic, even though the prices have fallen and everything else, there is no reason in the world, even with any government credits and anything, which is just theft of money from you and me, to do it for economic purposes. You're not going to put them up and you're not going to make money. There is only one reason to use solar photovoltaic, and that is a significant portion of this audience. That is you want true energy independence. You want energy independence from the grid. Solar photovoltaic can start you on that path to be completely energy independent, but it's going to be your most expensive electricity that you are going to buy. You're not going to save money. You're going to spend more money. You're going to have more maintenance, more time, more things. Uh, you're going to be more tied to your house, which is normally a bad thing. And But you are going to be energy independent. The grid can go down, and you're still going to be surviving. Now, remember, you don't size the photovoltaic panels to your house. You don't say, okay, I got a, my, my refrigerator that I bought at Lowe's, and I got my three-ton air conditioning system, so I'm going to buy all these panels. No, no, no. You size the house to the number of photovoltaic panels that you can buy. I mean, and even with... $20,000 worth of panels, you're still not running your central air conditioning system, let alone you know at night or 24 hours a day. So when you buy solar photovoltaic panels, you're generally getting a special sunfrost, high-efficiency refrigerator that uses a lot less power. You're getting a special high-efficiency freezer. 
I mean, of course, you're switching over all your lights to compact fluorescent and LED-based. You're not leaving the TV on all the time and everything else. You're being real miserly with your power. Uh, dishwasher with uh, electric heat in it, basically, forget it. Uh, <laughs> you're not running electric hot water heat either. Uh, you're, you're doing something else for your hot water, either natural gas, propane. Probably gas or, you know, you, you're right back at fossil fuels there. Or, it's or just solar, a yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, but uh, it can buy you a significant portion of energy independence and that can be very valuable to some of your listeners so i don't want to poo-poo it and and, you know so much i mean there's a lot i think what you're saying is okay if i'm going to build an earth ship in the middle of the new mexican desert and it's going to cost me eighty thousand dollars to run infrastructure and to bring power or i'm going to build something in the main woods with a cabin where there is no infrastructure then it's the best thing for some portion of my energy needs. There is one thing more expensive than solar photovoltaic power, and that is no electricity. <laughs> you know, that's even more expensive. So, yeah. yeah there's, it, it, remember it, the old show, Little House on the Prairie? Watch a couple episodes of that, and you'll see how valuable a solar panel is. Exactly. Exactly. So if you are going to do an off-grid situation out in the woods, uh, solar photovoltaic is going to be one of your chief things you're going to be relying upon. You might put up an 80-foot tower for wind, which we'll cover. Now, let's cover some of the economics of uh, solar photovoltaic. And, you know, the payback time is generally considered 30 years. And if you factor in labor and other costs and the inverter and the battery life, if you're using batteries, which is the whole grid-tie, non-grid-tie discussion, but the only way you can store energy due to be energy independent is with batteries. Uh, your batteries are going to take up a lot of money, and they have a life, so you won't really get your money back. But let's look at some of the basics. Right now, a sharp solar panel, and today is Valentine's Day, year 2012. Now, people could be listening to this thing in 2022, so we'll give the date. A sharp solar panel is running about $2.75 a watt. That's for the panel, not including shipping, not including mounting, mounts, labor, inverters, and batteries. And if you go to some off-brand panels right now, you're looking at about a buck ninety-nine a watt, which is record low price. And this is what China's doing. It's one reason Solera went out of business is because China just making them cheaper than they are, even with their government funding, and out they go. Um, so, you know, we're looking at about a buck $2 a watt. So that's $2 per watt of solar panel. Now, that doesn't mean you get, you know, for if you buy a 100-watt panel and you put it out in the sunshine, you don't get 100 watts for every hour of sunshine. There's something called mean solar hours because the sun comes up in the east and goes down in the west. So is your panel tracking the sun? And if your panel is tracking the sun, then, you know, there's a great deal of expense right there. Expense right there having a, a tracker for all the solar panels, which is easily the price of the panels and more. So if you got just a panel out there at an optimal angle facing south, you know, there's 12 hours of sunlight in a good sunny day. You're getting maybe five or six mean solar hours, which means you're five or six hours equivalent of your panel putting out 100 watts. So there's that factor to consider in. And remember, this is 
a buck ninety nine per watt. So this is really two thousand dollars per kilowatt is what you're paying. Now, what does a kilowatt cost us in the real world out here in the Midwest and in the East Coast area? A kilowatt of electricity, and remember I said $2,000 a kilowatt for solar panels. Okay, that same kilowatt is costing us eight and a half cents. So when you divide $2,000 per kilowatt hour into eight and a half cents per kilowatt hour electricity cost, that means you're going to have to have 23,500, 23,500 mean solar hours to get your money back. And that's the mean solar hours at maximum output, sunrises, sunsets, unless you're tracking the sun to get the max out of, out of your panel. So 12 hours of sunlight, six mean solar hours, divide that by six, and you get 4,000 days to get your money wow. back at eight and a half cents that we're paying here in the Midwest on a $2 watt panel. That's basically 11 years just to get your money back on the panel. Not the mounting, not the labor, not the wiring, not the batteries, not the inverter. Your batteries probably won't last 10 years. That depends upon the chemistry of the battery, how the plates are formatted, and plus it depends on how deeply you discharge your batteries. You just can't take your lead-acid batteries all the way down to nothing and charge them back up and all the way down to nothing and charge them back up. Even if they are deep-cycle batteries, it still hurts them to take them all the way down to nothing. In a properly operating solar panel system, you take your batteries down to 50% and then charge them back up take them down to 50% and then charge them back up. So you get a lot more life out of your batteries. People don't don't realize this. So there if you need to have double your storage, you just have to double your batteries. And that becomes a big expense, takes up a lot of space. And, and now you know why Steve hates photovoltaics. Uh, yes, but I'm trying to bite my tongue and say there is application for them, especially with energy independence. That's why I'm here. That's why I want to give the, some of these details to your people. And I didn't silence my there. I just silenced my phone. No big deal, man. Um, let's see. Where was I in my notes? So, I mean, so there you go. 11 years. Now... As I was saying, solar PV is for power independence, not economics. You don't size the solar panels to the house. You size, you don't size the, the solar panels to the house. You size the house to your solar panels. So you get the high efficiency refrigerator, high efficiency freezer. Now, here's where it becomes a little different. If you're in Hawaii, their average cost, and I went and looked this up and I have customers in Hawaii and they've sent me their power bills. So these are actual numbers. We're paying eight and a half cents here in the Midwest. California's paying about twenty-two cents because of their socialist, because of their socialist uh, pricing for electricity. Hawaii is paying forty-five cents and more for per kilowatt hour. So you're looking at four and a half to five and a half times the price of what we're paying. So now you start factoring that in and you look at, you know, the Bahamas is like 38 cents per kilowatt hour. You're looking at a return on investment time of about maybe three years. 
you know, so that's where the numbers start becoming interesting. But remember, there's a price for living in in paradise, and that's it. I mean, you're paying sure. a lot of my. You're in Hawaii. It, it's electricity comes island, from diesel. That's a big. It's also an island, and that's a big part of the issue. Yeah, you've got to get power to the island, and they can only generate so much power on the island. Right. And if and if they are going to build, I don't even know if they have. Uh, the, the capacity to build any kind of more energy production there because of all environmental protection, which it's a place to protect. Uh, but you're dealing with that situation. Even if you did have all of the, uh, the facilities to produce more power right on the island, then you also have to get the fuel to the island, right? So then you got to ship the coal or the oil or the nuke material in and out. Yeah. So it's yep. it's a very different situation when you're on an island versus a continent. Right, and they're, they're pretty much diesel-based. They're geothermal and they're diesel-based in Hawaii. And most of the islands around the world have big diesel generators that generate their electricity, and they bring in diesel by the millions of gallons on tankers and barges, and they put them in the great big tank farms. So their price of electricity is directly tied to the price of diesel fuel. Got and now, again, if you're on an island, you know, if you're in Fiji or Tahiti or one of the uh, many Pacific islands, you got a big shipping cost and getting those solar panels to you as well. Uh, so it's not just going to be the price of the panels. It's going to be the price of the shipping and than your effort to put them up and having limited resources there to put them up. But still, it gives you an idea that when you're starting to look at energy independence and your cost of electricity, like you said, it's going to be 45 cents, 50 cents a kilowatt hour, or it's going to cost you $20,000 in, in, in poles for the electric, for the electric company to come in to put in poles and wire. I mean, now you're looking at something that you have a return on investment on only because your base price for electricity so, to, be, to begin with is so high. Yeah, it's so very situationally dependent. In your estimation, um, as because they, they, they can make far more efficient panels for far less money today than they could 25 years ago, is there a pathway ever where photovoltaics through manufacturing improvements and efficiency improvements can ever actually work? Is this a, there, is this a stepping stone or is it that, maybe it's a stepping stone, but there's a shitload of stepping stones between here and, 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 and Nirvana, so to speak? Incredible question. Fabulous question. I mean, not even one in 10,000 people would have asked that question. There is. There is one stepping stone for photovoltaic to become operational with return on investment, and that's what's called con- concentrated solar photovoltaic. That is literally where you take a Fresnel lens, and so your Fresnel lens has a surface area of, let's say, one square foot, and you concentrate one square foot of solar energy hitting the Fresnel lens down into about one square inch of photovoltaic. And it's not just sitting there. Okay, photovoltaics like to start dying above 150 degrees Fahrenheit. So here you are concentrating sunlight from 144 square inches down to one square inch, you know, enough to make over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit easily onto sensitive silicon electronics that don't want to get above 150. So what they have is they have active cooling on the back end of them to take this heat away as fast as it can while still using the photons from the sunlight to generate electricity. 
And I have seen concentrated photovoltaic. I've seen state of the art concentrated photovoltaic. The, uh, the Arizona, uh, power APS, uh, the star facility out in Phoenix, Arizona has some of the best concentrated solar photo- photovoltaic research being done. And so there will become a time when you, when this is going to be economical. But again, concentrated solar photovoltaic, I mean, I, I've seen these great big, they're flat panels. They're 150 feet by 150 feet. I mean, they're gargantuan. They look like they're from NASA. They have to track the sun. So if you're doing concentrated, sure. you got to point it at the sun as it comes up in the east, follow it above it to its zenith, and all the way down to the west. You just can't put them out. So that would be more of a mass production. That's not something you're going to install on a roof. It just doesn't, you got dangers there and... Like setting houses on fire. No, no. I mean, in a mass-produced situation, it'd be very safe. No. Yeah, it'd, yeah. It'd, it'd but be that's very safe. That I is. mean, look, your hot water heater gets hotter. The flame of your hot water heater in your house and in your furnace is hotter than what this gets to. Sure. So, no, it, it's really pretty safe from that point of view. But I mean, again, it's a Fresnel lens. It's an expensive, multi-depth chip solar photovoltaic chip with an active cooling system, which means water, which means pumps, and means fans, heat exchangers, uh, tracking system. And so these will be coming about some decade for sure. uh, large solar farms. And these will, again, compete with what I do, which is large solar concentrators doing high-temperature solar chemistry to make hydrogen that goes into a generator that spins a turbine that you know, makes electricity. And uh, directly, when you spin a copper generator, you make direct three-phase electricity. It's power-matched. It's high voltage. And even with this concentrated solar photovoltaic, you're still looking at making DC current. DC current has to be converted to AC with silicon electronics. It still doesn't have a power factor matching that's worth a darn to it, which is beyond this this discussion. So sure. that was a really good question. Now, there is one thing that is coming up. If you really want to do solar PV cheap, there's people and companies selling solar photovoltaic kits. You've seen these advertisements on the net. Man finds secret, breaks loose from the electric company, blah, 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 buy it before he gets shut down. Okay, it's just, <laughs> that's just all hype BS. All, yeah. all they're doing is they're taking surplus cells, which are in many case sub-cells. They're B-grade, they're junk, they have a chip on them, they're not quite as efficient, they weren't the right size. Factory it's, seconds. It's factory seconds, they made too many of whatever. They're taking the cells that, like, you would buy at Radio Shack, okay? We used to buy single solar cells at Radio Shack at one one time for experiments. And then they sell you um, a conducting ribbon that you can solder to, and they sell you some special silver solder. And you can solder together your own solar panel. You can Then you got to mount it behind glass or plexiglass and blah, blah, blah. Very labor-intensive, but as I mentioned previously... And remember, we're going to come back to some of these numbers here. I'm going to blow you away with some of these numbers, okay? So I said two bucks per watt for low price solar panels right now. If you make your own, you can do this for less than a buck a watt. 
So if you take less than a buck a watt and you're in Hawaii at 45 cents per kilowatt hour, you're looking sure. at a return on investment, you know, pretty decent. But that is assuming you got the skill and the time and the materials. And you value your hours that you'll spend doing this at zero. That's right. You know, but, but if, it, if it's a hobby for you and you need something to do with the time anyway, it's, it, it doesn't really hurt anything. It so. a lot. It's a great learning yeah. experience. I mean, yeah. I mean, something goes wrong with your panels, you'll know how to fix them. I mean, sure. Uh, I, I, I won't ever fault anyone doing an, an endeavor or labor like this because you learn a great deal of things. So if you want to try it, go for it. And eBay is the best place to get them because there's so many different people with so many competing different kits that the prices are uh, pretty decent. And I went out and looked them up before I went on the show. And uh, they're going for less than a dollar a watt, somewhere between 60 and 70 cents per watt. But that, that doesn't include the price of the plexiglass and the glass that you got to do. And that just, of course, if you get, if you get uh, your book, that you tell them how to get glass for free. So. Sunshine <laughs> the Dollars is a yeah. great, great book. I show you how to get glass for free. And I'm just going to tell you right here on Jack's show. I mean, I, I, I tell you how to go to your local window and glass company and say, hey, instead of you putting the stuff into the dumpster, can I take it for free? And I tell you how to approach them and how to ask them and you know what to say and everything else. And most places go, yeah, sure, of course. Sure, they don't have to pay the dumpster man to dump it that week. Then pay the dumpster man and everything else. But I mean, there's little secrets to it. I mean, when they call you, you got to be there, okay? Because sure. I mean, and, and be nice, bring them pizza. And they'll go. I didn't want all of that. <laughs> you got to kind of take it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to take it. You got to take all of it too, and uh, you know, bring them pizza or beer and or, or, or donuts, cookies. I mean, you know, <laughs> be nice to them and you know, be their buddy, such that you know they they call you and they can depend upon you. But that's all detailed in Sunshine the Dollars. Very Sunshine of Dollars even tells you how to get free solar photovoltaic panels. I found places where you can get photovoltaic panels that have been damaged, and uh, they do nothing but throw them into a dumpster. And they still operate it between one-third and one-half of their original power, and I got 85 of them in two years. I covered wow. my entire garage with them, and there's a picture of me in the advertisement for Sunshine of Dollars standing on top of my garage with 85 solar photovoltaic panels laid out. See, now to me, that, if you want, if you want to get some uh, return of investment, that's the way to do it. If you can scavenge this stuff for free, somebody else already took the hit on it. Yeah, literally took the hit on it. Wait to yeah. read the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got the joke there. So let's kind of move on to some other stuff, some other ways of producing energy. Let's talk a little bit about biogas. That was the first thing we had you on for. The first show you had me on was for biogas, okay? And this biogas is methane, okay? It's an anaerobic digester. Anaerobic means without oxygen. So basically you take a great big tank, a great big jug, a great big container, a 55-gallon drum, a 320-gallon tote, something, and you throw a bunch of manure into it. And then you can load it up with sticks and twigs and leaves and grass clippings if you want. But, I mean, your starter component. Rotten fruit. Oh, rot fruit, dog poo, uh, <laughs> small furry animals that you ran over on the road that you don't want to eat. Uh, you just throw everything in there. And what happens, and you close it up and you leave a vent hole, which is where your gas comes out. What happens is, is all the aerobic bacteria 
that is in the manure and in the air and that we're breathing and is in our bodies and the small furry creature and everything. The aerobic bacteria take over and they start eating everything until all of the oxygen is out of the liquid slurry that's in there. And then the anaerobes, the without oxygen bacteria take over because of all the oxygen-eating bacteria just died off because they ran out of oxygen. So the anaerobes take over and they start digesting everything. And what do the anaerobes do? They make methane. And methane is natural gas, and it's flammable, and it is a great, wonderful fuel. And you can run a generator directly off of this. You can run a Coleman mantle uh, directly off of this. In fact, I got a video on YouTube, which I'll put a link up to on Solar123. It will say Coleman mantle running off of gas. Uh, I just put it onto a pipe and run some gas to it, and it lights up. You can see it. Um the system runs 24-7 if you feed it daily and take your fertilizer out, or you can run it in a batch mode where you like load up a 55-gallon drum full of it, wait about three days for it to start producing gas, get gas out of it for about three weeks, and then you empty it and start it all over again, or you run multiple batches. Sure. Um, I mean, it works really good. I mean, it produces a good gas, a clean gas, a usable gas. It's methane. Your byproduct is the most nitrogen-rich fertilizer you're going to want. So the waste slurry, you, you till it into your garden and your flowers and your uh, and the stuff that Jack, I mean, your show talks a great deal about greenhouses sure. and growing and square foot gardening. If you're really enterprising, you might even make more than you can use and sell it to your neighbors. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it works very good. Now, the thing, the big problem with anaerobic digestion takes a lot of space, okay? You're running 95% water to 5% dry matter because that is what it takes to make a slurry. You know, if, if, if you take water and dirt and you mix it up and you to, to get a nice liquid consistency, that's what it is. It's 90 to 95% water and 5% dirt. You know, the same thing will go with the leaves, the, tw- the twigs, the sticks, and the manure and everything else. So you got a lot of water to make the slurry. And it needs to be kept warm. I mean, it really wants to be around 85 degrees Fahrenheit. And so if you're in a colder climate, you can insulate it, but you got to insulate it really good with a bunch of insulation or straw or ground-up cellulose insulation or foam. Uh, it, pr- it produces heat when it digests, which is good, so it'll keep itself warm, but you got to really insulate it. But So this is really more of a warm climate type of thing, the southern part of the United States. Or <laughs> the warmer, I forget, this show is worldwide. Hello, people in New Zealand and Australia and sure. Russia listening to the show. Amazing, Jack, your show goes around the world. Um, so it's a more of a warmer climate thing. Uh, but it it works really good. It just takes up a lot of space. And you got to have a continual source of manure and, and grass and lawn clippings and other things to feed into this. So if you were... Um, at a golf course or something, you would have a continual source of material to feed into this, and you might have the space and everything else. Kept cattle and horses. You cattle and do horses and goats and chickens, and those are all fabulous sources. 
Now, remember, for every 18 degrees Fahrenheit you increase in temperature or decrease in temperature, you will double or half your bacterial activity. So if you go from 70 degrees to 88 degrees Fahrenheit in temperature, you will double your your bacteria activity. So it will digest twice as quick by going up 18 degrees Fahrenheit. And you go up another 18, it will double again. So that's why if you start getting it cold, like getting it down to 70 or 65 or 60, it's really going to slow down, and <laughs> which will give you a lower output over a longer period of time. But then again, you need more of it to give you a usable amount of gas. Sure. So now this can be demonstrated in something as small as a five-gallon container for a science fair. I've had a, g- a girl in Arizona. She won first place in the high school science fair. She did this with two five-gallon containers and dog poo and lawn clippings and made the gas and ran it to a mantle and just wowed everyone. So it can be done in as small as five-gallon container. It's better done in a 55-gallon drum with a 30-gallon up ended up and you take a 55 gallon drum fill up full of the mixture you put a 30 gallon drum upside down into it what happens is as the gas is produced it pushes the 30 gallon drum up you have your hose on the end of the 30 gallon so the weight of the drum makes the pressure that you need that forces it out of the hose like i said if you need more pressure you just put a brick on top of it yeah uh I have a book that shows how to do this step-by-step. It's called Biogas 1 and 2. I'll have it in the show notes on solder1234.com. Also, I have a book called Biogas 3. This is how the Chinese do it. They do it in ground. They dig a pit, and then they line it with bricks and or cement and mortar or some type of lime paste. And uh, you put a partition into it, and you have an inlet and an outlet. So you literally dump in, like, 20 gallons of manure and, and compost a day on one side. You get 20 gallons of fertilizer being kicked out on the other side. And this is a continuous plan, and it'll sit there and continually make biogas. This book is called Biogas 3, How the Chinese Do It, and it'll be in the show notes. And China had, in 1970, they had 40 million of these in the country. I mean, they were really big on starting to make their own energy then. And they are even more so now. Yeah, I'll tell you, this is one of the, the, of all the technologies you talk about, one of the most usable in my, in my mind anyway, because you do not have to be technically smart to figure out how to do this. The inputs you need are widely available. And to me, it solves two problems. One, it supplies energy, whether it's heat or light or, like you say, you can run a generator with this stuff if you want to. But the other thing it also does is it solves a waste issue. So it takes a waste that would go to a landfill and turns it into fertility. Yeah, it gives gives you a fertilizer too, yeah. So everybody that's out there composting could literally be doing this instead. Instead of doing an aerobic compost like we traditionally do with our compost piles, you would do an anaerobic compost you're going to get a little bit less, actually significantly less output as far as fertilizer, but very, very nitrogen-dense fertilizer, very, very organic fertilizer as long as your inputs are, you know, if you're getting if you're getting Roundup-soaked grain that you're throwing in there, you're, obviously you've got that issue. But assuming you've got good inputs, you get great output, yeah. and then you get the heat energy as well. You could run probably two of your little tank systems in a greenhouse, 
and use it to heat the greenhouse through a winter. No, wouldn't do it. Uh, Depends on where you're at, Steve. I mean, for you in Chicago, probably not. For me, when I need supplemental heat 40 days out of the year overnight, I can do that easy, I would think. Right. Yeah, a a system that would provide a usable amount of power to a house in terms of heat and light and generator power, you're looking at about a 1,000-gallon cistern. Okay. You know, it's a little biogas three, how the Chinese do it. But you start. So maybe three to four IBC totes then in a kind of a rotational pattern, you could sure. do that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Those chemical, gotcha. chemical totes can be, you can get a 300 gallon chemical tote for under a hundred, hundred, uh, dollars easily. It's, it's <laughs> a lot less than a solar panel. Yeah, a lot less than a solar panel. And you might have to be feeding this a hundred, fifty to a hundred pounds of, uh, of, uh, material a day. Okay. And, and, that's a general rule of thumb. So, biogas one and two, biogas three, and I also have um, the uh, complete handbook of homemade power, uh, also available on my website, and that covers biogas real well. And that'll be at solar1234.com. But there you go. There's the ins and outs of biogas. Well, before we move on to gasification, one quick thing I want to add. In your notes, you noted that the smaller the material is that goes into the tank, the better. Yeah. And uh, the urban farming guys that are in St. Louis, their solution to that, and they get all this for throwaway fruit and stuff like that they use to make their biogas, all they did was carry themselves down to Home Depot, and I think they even got it at cost because they told the Home Depot guys what they were doing, and they put them on YouTube, and they just bought a garbage disposal. And they just plug the garbage disposal into the electrical outlet. They just stick the garbage disposal on the top of the tank, and they shove the stuff in there, and then they yank it and rinse it out and put it away and do it again the next time they get more stuff. That's the way to do it. That's really It's so easy. The garbage disposal does not have to go under your sink. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody can use one, even me. Uh, Actually, I can't now because I have a septic tank, so I don't do that. But anyway, um, let's move on to gasification. Okay, gasification. This is the real way to make energy with waste material that you can get. Walnut shells, wood, sticks, bark, wood chips. It's all great. It, it likes to be hunky stuff, like from a wood chip to a jawbreaker in size to a golf ball in size and maybe a little larger, like half a baseball in size. Solid, hunky material. Works good with coal. Uh, works good with chopped up wood as well. This is what the first engines in the world ran on, was gas from a gasifier. This is what town gas was. This is what city gas was, blue gas, light gas was. You had a gas plant in your town, and it was using wood or coal or combination thereof to make to do gasification. And it was making a gas that is dominated by carbon monoxide and hydrogen. And carbon monoxide is a great fuel, but just don't breathe it. Okay. It's, it's poisonous. And this works so well that, uh, one million vehicles ran on it during World War II. If you saw those big hunky things in the front and back of vehicles during World War II, the old pictures, those were gasifiers and they would put in anything from charcoal to wood hunks and everything else, and they would light it and start it up, and they would drive their car to and from town. You might have some reduced horsepower on it, so you would have to uh, drive um, 
switch over to gasoline and drive up a hill, but then going down the hill on the flatland, you would do um, run it on, on the gasifier. Really, we covered this into another show. We went over gasification in pretty good detail, and we went over gasification in the first show, the one that uh, we had on biogas, so I won't go over the whole thing here. Basically, this is the way to make fuel with what you can pick up off the ground because you can pick up sticks and twigs and logs and use a chainsaw and uh, waste from lumber mills and everything else. And this relies on a process called partial oxidation. And what happens when you burn something in a campfire, that's full oxidation. Your wood, your coal, you know, you throw some gasoline onto it. All of that burns completely into carbon dioxide and water vapor. Everything burns into carbon dioxide and water vapor that has a carbon carbon molecule into it. That's called full combustion. Partial oxidation is what you're doing is you're starving the unit of enough oxygen to do full combustion. So you get incomplete combustion. And so thus you get carbon monoxide, a fuel, and hydrogen as a byproduct, along with the nitrogen that was in the air that went into it. So the fuel is a little bit diluted. So this is what kills you inside your house from carbon monoxide poisoning is when your furnace goes bad and you don't have full combustion, you have partial combustion going on and you get a CO leak and that will poison you in your house. The same thing with running like a barbecue in your house. You're not getting full combustion, you're getting partial combustion and that's why it produces carbon monoxide and it's poisonous. Well, when you take this partial oxidation method and you put it into a container, and you contain it, and you control the airflow in and the, and the amount of gas out, you get a very usable fuel. I mean, it works very good. You can run a car on it. You can run a generator on it. You can compress it. You can store it. There's been great advancements made on it. I have the best collection of books in the world on the subject, I have 10 books on the subject. It's called The Hydrogen Gas Generator for Vehicles and Engines. It's volumes 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6, all the way up to the encyclopedia on the subject, which is two volumes and volume 10. The best thing for me to say is if you want to start doing this, I'll put a link on solar1234.com. The best book to start with is called Hydrogen Gas Generator for Vehicles and Engines, Volumes 3 and 4. This is what's called the FEMA gasifier. It's a very proven design, plus the other volume I have with it tells you all about the chemistry and the how and why it works. You can go to go to YouTube and type in FEMA gasifier, and you'll find a bunch of people who've made FEMA gasifiers and running engines off of them. And they run them off of all sorts of fuel. It works very good. Um, let's see what else is in my notes. It, I cover the different temperatures, different zones in the book, and I, the, the book has exploded diagrams in it, the parts list, step by step, everything you need to do to do it hands on. It's all photographs and paint by numbers for you to make your own FEMA gasifier. And you make it from a 55-gallon uh, drum, a garbage can, 
uh, stainless steel salad bowl colander that you drill holes into, and a piece of furnace pipe. So it, it's really not rocket science at all. It works really good. And you can hook up a generator to it. It'll suck the air right through it, turn it into a gas, run it into the generator. The book shows you how to set up some uh, valves to uh, modulate the gas and the air into the generator so it runs. And you'll see the videos of them running on YouTube. So that's a short story on the gasifier that we've already covered in another show. Now, here's the key thing. If you don't want to do all this, if you want to buy one, as a kit, and you want to put it together, or if you want to buy it all assembled, or if you want to buy it on a pallet assembled and shipped to you, and if you want to buy it on a pallet assembled with a little computer control system on it and a generator hooked up to it on the pallet for on a 40-inch by 48-inch pallet shipped to you, dropped off to your house or your farm or your island, so all you have to do is put in the feed material into it, and it'll make between, there's a 10-kilowatt and a 20-kilowatt one. There is only one place in the entire world to get one. I'll put the links at solar1234.com for this in case you don't get what I'm telling you. I have no part in this. I make no money off of this. This is just the greatest unit made in the world. It's called the GEC gasifier. That's a G-E-K gasifier. It's from allpowerlabs.com A-L-L-P-O-W-E-R-L-A-B-S dot com It's run by a man by the name of Jim Mason. He is the guru in the world on this subject. It is an actually he's in Berkeley, California. It's an open source project. You can download all the plans and the schematics and everything else. You can even input the numbers into your own water jet or laser table and start cutting metal and welding one up right now if you want. They hold seminars and classes on this. I believe it's every three months. It's hands-on. You make them. You can buy one from him. You can see one using running. They actually, during the class, they put their, their power pallet, what it's called, they put it online on a video camera for all three days running 24-7 so you can see the thing operational. They're the only people in the world with the confidence and the quality in a unit to actually let it run and do it on live video. And they've taken this thing around the world to the Philippines, to Sri Lanka. They've been all around the world and the United States. Uh, making and selling these units. They're pretty much kind of non-profit. Uh, sure. The way that they do it. They're not a big for-profit company. It's a, it's a work of passion. But they do make money on it. Uh, a 10 kilowatt unit. Okay. So, on a pallet, everything ready to go, assembled, generator, it just, Turn thing on costs about seventeen thousand dollars, and a twenty kilowatt unit will cost about twenty six thousand dollars. Now let's put this into perspective. You're going, oh my god, twenty six thousand dollars <laughs> for a twenty kilowatt unit, and that's the same person dreaming about putting a thirty five thousand dollar photovoltaic system on their house someday. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you're, <laughs> now, now let's put this into perspective. We're talking about 20 kilowatts of electric output, which means he really has a 35 to 40 kilowatt generator 
because it's derated by the gas because the gas is, has less density than other fuels. Plus it's got atmospheric nitrogen. So we're talking about a 20 kilowatt output here. Okay. So this is real 20 kilowatts of electric output. Your average house uses between one and a one and a half kilowatts on average. $26,000 for 20 kilowatts is like buying a solar panel at a buck 30 a watt. Okay. And what did I just tell you? Solar panels are priced at $2 a watt. Okay. Not including shipping and, and all the other parts. This is including everything. Okay. And it's a buck 30 a watt. And this thing works 24 hours a day. It works when there's clouds. It works in the dark. It works in the rain. It works in the sunshine. It works when there's not a mean solar hour, okay? If you wanted, if you wanted a kilowatt of solar panels and you wanted a kilowatt of output from those panels all the time, you'd have to have about five times, five kilowatts of solar panels and storing all that power in batteries because sun rising, sunset, cloudy, nighttime, you got to store all that energy, everything. So that $2 per watt just went to $10 per watt because you got something called day and night in clouds. So $26,000 for a 20 kilowatt unit is really a bargain. I mean, no house would need more than a 10 kilowatt unit, which is only $17,000 anyways. Uh, so this is really... And in some states, if you bought that 20 kilowatt system, you could be selling power back to the grid with it. Yeah, well, you could, but that is if you were in a state that allowed the metering. Do they have yeah. net metering? Do they allow you to put back more electricity than you produce than you, than you actually use? Some people, some places only let you put back enough electricity that you actually used in the house, and it's called. In this case, I wouldn't need any at all. Right, it's called storing on the grid, is what it's called. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's lots of places. There are some places with socialist government programs where they're stealing your money, money from you and me, to give to people at highly inflated rates where they're paying them 10 cents a kilowatt hour to put electricity onto the grid, okay? Those places are few and far between. You might find them in California. So, <clears throat> excuse me. It's Again, it's now a moneymaker. It might be in a few locations, but really it's a power independence thing. And the only problem with it is it's like a gremlin. you got to feed it. And unlike a gremlin, you gotta feed it day and night. Mm -hmm. So there is a pretty good. You do have to feed it after midnight instead of not. My my question is, okay, if I want to run that 10 kilowatt unit and I want to run the average household with it, what's going to be my fuel requirement in like, let's say, tons per month or something? Oh God, the rule of thumb for a vehicle is if you were driving on it, it's about a pound per mile. Okay. So, uh, I'd have to look it up, but, you know, we're looking at, you know, probably several hundred pounds per day at maximum okay. output. But what you would do, I mean, a 10 kilowatt unit, I mean, this is where we, we run it like we're a submarine, okay? You get yourself a battery bank and a good inverter for your entire house. And your submarine on the surface of the ocean, you're running full out, you, 
start up your 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 generator, you run till ten kilowatts, and you charge up all your batteries, and then you turn it off, and then you run off of your batteries. You go underwater, you run silent, you run deep, you run off of your batteries for the rest of the day. So it's like in the morning, you want to run your well motor, you want to run your microwave, you want to run your refrigerator real and freezer real nice and hard. What you'll do is you'll start up the unit, run the 10 kilowatt unit at full output for a couple of hours, run everything in the house, get all your morning stuff done, charge up your battery banks, and you'll turn it off. And then the battery banks for the rest of the day will run your television. It'll run your refrigerator on and off. It'll run your lights at night and everything. So a 10 or 20 kilowatt unit is really kind of running 24-7. You'd be powering a small village. Sure, sure. For a homestead, you'd be doing it on and off, on and off with a battery bank. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next. This is battery bank. So there, you answered my question as though you are an intuitive individual. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I am an intuitive in- individual. And plus, you and I have Skype, and we can send text messages back and forth to each other <laughs> and read each other's minds. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, uh, to be fair, we're not doing that right now. I know, I know. We've done it before, though. We have cheated. <laughs> anyway. Um, Really cool stuff, and I, I think it's kind of maybe a uh, a bigger investment, but like most things, it's a bigger payback as well because most of the stuff that you need to burn in this you can get for next to nothing or for nothing because Labor. if it's yeah if it's wood and it's chunky like you say you can throw it in there and with a few exceptions just about anything you get your hands on will work. I I just had a um, uh, Dave from uh, Dave'sGarden.com on and. Uh, uh, and allthingsplants.com, and he gets tremendous amounts of sweet gum from a company that makes furniture and baskets out of sweet gum, and he gets all, now he's using it for mulch, but, and it might not be the most high output stuff, and it might not be the most optimum, but if it's free for all you can take, there's probably other places you can get even better material for nothing. Yeah, true. I mean, it's going to be, now remember, a good wood chipper, if you're a tree service, or something, yeah. a good wood chipper would cost you as much as this, uh, this unit would in itself. But then again, if you got friends who are in the tree service business and they're cutting down trees and they got a chipper, I mean, most of these places are looking for places to dump their mulch. The gun range I go to, they allow, uh, tree service places to come in and dump their mulch for nothing because we use it for, uh, bedding for the gun ranges and for it on the sides and everything else. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a waste resource. Depending upon where you live, I'm not sure in Arizona if there's many. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Where, you but live, <laughs> where you live uh, down there in uh, Arkansas and everything, you get plenty of trees and everything. So, Oh, the guys from the state are out shipping stuff every day up on, just, just to keep the growth back from the uh, – power lines. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's a tremendous surplus of it. Now, here, most of that stuff ends up at the city compost facility, but I've talked to those guys down there, and if you want to go to the piles where it's chips waiting to go into the compost mix, you can go there and take that, too. Yeah. They don't care. They, don't, you know, they, they have plenty of carbon, so they're, the they're fine. The opens up when you ask. Yeah. <laughs> when you ask, the world opens up, and the worst they can say is no. They just might end up saying yeah, sure. Back up. You know, yeah. get yeah. get your shovel and load it up. But in a way, you go. So that kind of takes care of uh, of uh, 
of wood gasification. Um, moving on, uh, I have made uh, very high uh, high proof uh, ethanol alcohol using your still. Yep. And uh, you can light it, and it burns a nice, pretty flame. And uh, so there's a you know we can you know the whole alcohol can be a gas thing. We look at ethanol. Uh, there's a tremendous resource for for energy production there as well. I have probably, me personally, made ethanol now one of the simplest things for you to do for home energy. And it was a lot harder before I came out with the latest <coughs> ethanol still because traditionally you'd have to babysit the still. You gotta watch the, the head, the head temperature and what purity is coming out and adjust the temperature and everything else and make sure you didn't run out. Blah, blah, blah. But I found this little moonshine still. And it, literally, it's a moonshine still. It looks like a coffee pot. And it's kind of the size of a, of a coffee maker. And uh, you put in a gallon of wash, which is fermented sugar or fermented donuts or fermented whatever you want. And you turn it and you put a timer on it. And I go to Walmart and you get an $8 wall timer. I plug it and I say, run for three and a half hours. And it runs for three and a half hours and it makes its first distillation of alcohol. And I do this five times. I take all that alcohol, and then I redistilled it again for two and a half hours, and I redistilled it again for about an hour. I distill it four times, and I end up getting 180-proof ethanol, okay? And this is about as high as it gets. Now, the key thing with ethanol, again, we have a whole show on this, okay? So... Go to solder1234.com, look for the whole whole show on ethanol. You'll get all the details. It'll point you to a website called imakemygas.com. That's imakemygas.com, where I was selling the still and everything, but as of right now, February 14th, I'm sold out. So you got to sign up for the waiting list. And if you sign up for the waiting list, I'll let you know as soon as the still is, is, is out, it's the cheapest still on the market. It's about $230, including shipping, USA shipping. It's the slickest little thing in the world. I mean, you look at things on the Internet, and they got, you know, columns six feet high or three feet high and, you know, and big pots and milk cans and, and beer kegs. For It's like I, I got them all, okay? I got big columns. I got all those things. I've done it. This is the slickest, easiest little thing in the world. Jack's got one. He's done it. It works fabulous. Uh, just trust me. If you want to see how to make ethanol, how to ferment the sugar, and how to make it in this little still, I got a 20-minute video that plays for free when you land on imakemygas.com. Just go watch it. It'll tell you everything you need to know. Do it with me. Do it without me. However you want to do it, the knowledge is there for free. Now, the thing about ethanol is once you get 95%, remember proof is twice of the percent, so 50, uh, vodka is 80 proof, which is 40% ethanol. So 100 proof ethanol is 50%, 200 proof is 100% pure. You have to be at 90 percent pure or 190 proof to mix it with gasoline if you're at that percentage or better you can mix it 50 50 with gasoline and you can pour it right in your car right now 
riding your gasoline car as long as it's 1983 or newer, and you can drive on it. So what I'm telling you is with this little tabletop still for about 200 bucks, you can make half of your fuel for your car that you drive in right now with no modifications to the vehicle. I go over this in detail on the other show. Go and listen to it. Now, the thing is, you start your first batch with sugar, okay, and yeast, bread yeast, okay, yeast you put into your bread maker, yeast you make bread with, converts sugar into alcohol and carbon dioxide gas. The CO2 bubbles out, it leaves behind the ethanol. This is how you make moonshine. This is how you make uh, alcohol. Now, buying sugar from Walmart, is a little expensive way to do it. It's great for your first batch because I've done it. You've gone through all the steps. You've fermented. You've distilled. You go, yeah, I understand this. I can do this. No problem. Okay. Then you, you then you try to get cheap sugar. And I had one of my customers turn me onto this thing called, oh, you preppers will love this, salvage grocery stores. Go Google a salvage grocery store. Have you heard of these places, Jack? I, I actually had not until I got your outline. They sell things at liquidation cheap, okay? I had one of my customers who bought the still send me photographs of 1,900 pounds of sugar that he got for $114 at a salvage grocery store. That wow. is enough sugar to make 155 gallons of 200 proof alcohol. So with electricity to run the still and everything, we're talking about he has made over 155 gallons of his own fuel for less than two bucks a gallon that he mixes with gasoline and he drives on. So you can do it with sugar cheap if you go to a salvage grocery store or get it surplus. Now to make it really cheap, you gotta use starch. What's starch? Starch is donuts, starch is bread, starch is flour, starch is pastry, starch is all the carbs that you are going to eat. If it makes you fat, it's probably got carbs in it. <laughs> right. So, I mean, if you live near an apple farm you can uh, or pears, you can get a fruit press, and you can press all that juice, and you can ferment that, and you can make alcohol. Or you can use starch. And to do starch, use the six-step starch conversion process that is documented step-by-step step in the world-famous book, Alcohol can be a gas. You can get this. Listen to the last show. Jack drops the book on the desk, and it's a thump, okay? The book weighs over four pounds. It's 660 pages. It's the Bible on making alcohol. It shows you how to convert the starch into sugar, and then you ferment the sugar, and you make your alcohol. You can do this from... Like I said, one-day-old donuts, they sell to you at half price. Two-day-old donuts, they throw away. The world opens up when you ask. Go ask for them. They will give them to you. Um, cornflakes that are swept off the floor from a cornflakes factory, and there's lots of fa- places that make stuff like this. Pastry droppings from a bakery, stuff that falls on the floor. Um, corn that is uh, surplus or has a fungus in it that's no good for animal feed. All of this starch can be converted to sugar by heating it up, and then you add barley malt. And if you want to know about this, ask any beer brewer like Jack. He'll tell you how easy it is to brew your own beer. It's just as easy and even easier to use barley or barley malt to convert your starches over into your sugars to ferment. 
Or, yeah, especially if you're going to make, because if you're making um, fuel for your car out of it, you, there's things that you don't worry about as far as taste yeah, and haze and, and all that other crap. And did I use the right yeast to impart the, you know, and then the hops? You don't have to worry about all that stuff. No. You don't care if you're just distilling the alcohol. So, oh, in fact, you know, now you say that you're, you're, you're for, compared to beer, you're skipping an entire step. If I make beer with, with a full mash, I have to do the mash. And then I have a, what you would call the true brewing process where I'm, I'm adding hops and I'm brewing it and I'm trying to extract alpha acids and I mean, I'm not even going to do that if I'm doing this. Right. So just that, that whole, that whole hour to hour and a half boil just never even happens. You don't even have to use barley. You can buy what's called alpha amylase and glucoamylase, which are commercially available enzymes available on the internet. And you add those, you heat up the, 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 the mixture. Get it to about 190. You add the alpha amylase, which is the same enzyme that's in your spit. And then you cool it down about 140. You add the glucoamylase, mix it up, and you add some iodine and see if it turns purple. And if it does, doesn't, you know, all your starch is converted over. And then you cool it down and you ferment it and you distill it. Now, in order to get to the highest purification, you have to add what's called zeolite. To it, and we talk about this in the last show in detail, so I'll only mention it here. I'm the only person in the world with a video that shows you how to mix zeolite with your alcohol that has some water to get the rest of the water out of it, so you can be above 95% and mix it with gasoline. And at imakemygas.com, links at solder1234.com, I sell the zeolite, I sell the video, I sell all the step-by-step safety instructions and everything else. So ethanol works. Ethanol can work for you, but again, it's just like the gasifier. It's just like the biogas. If you got the waste source of material to make the ethanol out of or to work in the bile digester or to work in the gasifier, if you got that source of material, you're all set. You can do it. Absolutely, and I think that's the the key is can you get the uh, the material and do you want to do the work? And the one thing I love about your your little still, Steve, is that it takes a lot of the work out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make a huge amount, but you don't have to. If you buy, like I said, you buy a little timer for it. Uh, you can get Walmart for eight ten bucks. You don't have to really do anything. If you had a couple of them sitting there, you can make a significant amount of fuel over a year. And it the the, the fermentation, especially you know, like even without the um, even without them doing the starch conversion and all that, if you can get 1,900 pounds of sugar for whatever it was your buddy paid there, it was like a hundred and something bucks. You you can make it profitably with that. You just need to go and you get a place to put 100 or 1,900 pounds of sugar. <laughs> That's a couple truckloads, but no, uh, it's not. That it was a real. It's a pretty small amount. I mean, it would really it, it basically would be enough to say cover the bed of your pickup truck, not even stack wow. it up. I'm just thinking of a five-pound bag of sugar, and I need ten of them to make fifty pounds, and I need well, twenty think of, of them a 50 to make a fifty-pound bag of sugar, and then sure, then sure, that's right, thirty-eight of them. So, I mean, a layer on the bed of your pickup truck. So, you know, what's funny now is whenever we go to Sam's Clubs or uh, Costco's or whatever, we walk by the baking section where they have those big fifty and hundred-pound bags of sugar. Yeah. I just look at that and go, "Ooh, fuel!" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true, true, expensive fuel, but true. So yeah, let's uh, let's move along again. I got a whole show on alcohol, and I got a whole Q and A show on alcohol. It's at solar1234.com. It's in Jack's show notes. It's on the Steve Harris page of uh, Jack's um, 
website. So you got all the notes. Go back and listen to it. Let's go on to uh, water. Okay. Okay. And this is as in water, as in water falling over a cliff. Okay. There is no such as thing as water fuel. Water is never going to power a damn thing except for your farts. Okay. <laughs> you mean I can't buy that $99 product on eBay and stick it on my car and pour water in there and make my car run? No, no. never, ever. It not is, in it, any it, world, shape, or form, or not even in your imagination. So, anyways. As Paul Wheat would say, no, that's just marketing. Yeah, that's <laughs> just marketing, sucker. So, a water, as in falling water, okay? You say you have a place with a river, a creek, uh, a lake that's spilling over. You can put in a micro turbine and you have a small dam, something with a six foot, an eight foot, or ten foot head, okay? A head is how high the water is, okay? And this is awesome. It's very economical. It runs 24-7. The payback can be in single-digit years. It runs all the time. And a small unit will make a kilowatt of power without you even thinking about it. It's the best thing you're going to get as a prepper for a continuous power source that you don't have to feed it anything. You don't have to go feed the baby. You don't have to feed the gremlin. You don't have to ferment anything. This is the number one thing you could possibly have as a source of falling water. The thing is, the number of locations in the world where you can get a good little microturbine dam going is very limited. But it's not to be overlooked. Of course, if you're on a small creek with your own dam, you're also in a, possibly in a flood zone as well. So that could sure that could be good or bad for being a prepper. But uh, I just wanted to cover everything. Falling water is great. Now, the thing closely ro- related to falling water is wind energy. We've not talked about wind energy. Wind is no friggin' magic bullet either. Okay. It's the same as water. It's a limited area where there is good wind that will get you return on investment. Most wind is considered to have return on investment in 15 years. Okay, those big turbines that they put up with yep. maintenance and everything, they're hoping hoping to get their money back in 15 years or less. A very good wind situation on your farm, at your house, in a good wind area will be payback in seven years or less. Okay. An awesome wind return on investment will be two years and that's awesome, awesome wind. National renewable, uh, energy people, NREL, NREL.gov. I'll have a link on solar1234.com to their wind charts. There's something called the different classes of wind. We go from class three, which is weak to class seven, which is like, oh my God, superb. And you can look in the country and you can see where you are. Now, there's this huge wind corridor going from northern Texas all the way up to North Dakota and Montana where there's really good wind. And then there's some good places in Pennsylvania, some good places like in in uh, California where they have the wind farms. On the coast, east and west coast and the Gulf Coast, you generally have good winds coming off of uh, the oceans depending upon the time of year. On the western side of the Great Lakes, there's good wind. And keep in mind, these wind ratings are at 50 meters, 150 feet above the ground. It's very common to have a wind generator up on an 80-foot tower, minimum, okay, or an 80-foot pole with a bunch of guy wires. 
even if you're running a 400 watt or an 800 watt or a thousand watt wind jenny, it's very common for the thing to be up 80 feet or more. The good news is the wind generator, not including the tower and the labor and putting it up, it's about a buck a watt or less. Um, <clears throat> so that's the good news on wind. But again, if you're going to want to store it, you're going to have to put it into batteries. And again, there's money there with the batteries and the power independence. It's more for power independence than it is for making money. Again, you're not going to be making money on this. It's um, going to be more of a power independence thing. I can't stress too how much the um, the place you live impacts whether or not it even makes sense to do. When I lived in North Texas, especially once I bought a boat and wanted to go fishing, and I had to pay attention to the wind for that because you get too much chop, it's dangerous to be out there and all, it amazed me how much the wind actually blows in Dallas-Fort Worth. I don't think Chicago should be the windy city. I think Dallas-Fort Worth should. Yeah. Um, when we moved up here to Arkansas, and then I had gotten used to paying attention to how much wind blew, it amazed me how infrequently the wind blows here. Right. Uh, and I'm up at about 1,100 feet elevation up in the mountains. If there's ever wind, I get it. Um, it's almost non-existent for... Uh, severely long portions of the year other than when we get a storm. Yep. Uh, through the summer, I mean, you get a little breeze in the evening, but it ain't going to turn a turbine, even a small one. No. Nope. Uh, so it doesn't even make sense. I mean, I wouldn't even, you know, I always thought when we moved up here, I would put a few little alternative energy things and just, if nothing else, for the experience and all I wouldn't even waste my time, I think, putting one up on my roof if somebody gave it to me where I'm at. There's just, there's just no point. Yeah, and wouldn't most wind generators aren't going to be on your roof. They're going to be 80 foot in the air. So you're talking yeah. about some real estate for some guy wires and everything else. And, you know, I'm going here through my show notes, Jack, and um, I think I'm going to have to request to come back for a seventh show because we're over an hour right now. Yep. And I've not even covered <clears throat> additives for your gas tanks and how they're BS. I was, I was going to cover diesel engines with waste vegetable oil, straight vegetable oil, biodiesel. I was going to cover natural gas for cars and natural gas for generators, which is going to be a huge interest for your people. You want energy independence that lasts through a disaster? Natural gas on a generator is it. I didn't cover propane in vehicles yet. I have a whole section here to cover on hydrogen, hydrogen power, and hydrogen in vehicles and the best way to get hydrogen. I was going to cover fuel cells and what's happening with fuel cells and what's coming up. And I've not even covered this, and it's a, it's a whole nother hour worth of material. So why don't we uh, cut things here and say thank you to everyone. You guys are awesome. All Everything I spoke about is going to be at solar1234.com. I'll have I got the special deal in my books for the three solar books for $49. Uh, that's $49 for anyone listening. The MSB people join the membership support brigade. I mean, you're going to get your money back real quickly, let alone the money you're going to save on, on top of the $49 books I just gave you. And uh, links to the past shows will be on solder1234.com. And um, let's do uh, show number seven, and I'll cover absolutely. All, I'll cover all this fabulous stuff. I mean, I got lots of juicy details and <clears throat> good things to give you about everything I mentioned, from natural gas to propane to waste vegetable oil and 
all the hands-on stuff that you can do yourself. All right, well, we'll definitely uh, set up a time with you to have you back on. I'd just like to say thanks for being here again. You, Of all the guests I bring on, there's a reason you've been on more than just about anybody else, and that's because you bring real information, and you, you really know what you're talking about, man. So I appreciate how freely you share the information with the audience, Steve. I love your audience. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they just make you want to give to them because they, they, they do things. I get thank you notes and... People write you, and they write me, and they say, I've done this, and send pictures, and it just go, we just go, wow, this is this is what we're, we're doing, and this is what we're doing it for, and we just was like, okay, fine, I'll give you more. You know, I think the reason for that is it's probably wrong that I even refer to them as the audience. The reality is what we have here is a community. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a survival podcast community, and uh, it's a pretty amazing group of people, and I know they appreciate you. So uh, on their behalf, thanks for uh, thanks for being with us again, and we'll get you on just as quickly as we can work back into the schedule. Okay, Jack. See ya. And with that, folks, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Stephen Harris, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better Show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Don't have to live the way they tell you to. Make your own way, others will follow. Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. Cause nobody up there cares, they're living.